Go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I had Justin read the whole chapter earlier, so we won't take the time to read through that chapter again. We'll look at it as we go through it. But, you know, our church has sought from the beginning to have a philosophy of ministry. We've got it, we, we early on, when we tra- started the church, we wrote out a philosophy of ministry. How are we going to do things here as a church? Uh, what is important to a church? And we wrote that out. Mike wrote it out, actually, from a, actually it's from a school assignment, I think he did. But it was, it's a great philosophy. I totally agree with it. And uh, that's on our website, by the way, if you want to read through it. If you haven't, you should read through it and know what your church is doing, why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, but at any rate, we hold to the following standards basically in our church. We could, you know, we could extend this further, but basically we hold to a high view of God. If you know what we do here, you understand that. We hold to the supremacy of Scripture. We hold thoroughly to an accurate view of mankind, which is that he's a sinner, totally depraved and dead in his sins. Only God can save him. We hold fourthly to a proper understanding of the purpose of the church. But tonight, I want to focus on that second foundational pillar the supremacy of Scripture, the supremacy of Scripture. Our philosophy states that Scripture is accurate, it's authoritative, and it's sufficient. That is, the Word of God is. They are, first of all, accurate, the Scripture is. Psalm 119.60 says this, 160, says, The sum of your word is truth. So when we go to the Scripture, we can go there with the assurance that the very words that we read are absolutely true without any error at all. They are also authoritative. Wayne Grudem defines that the authority of Scripture in the following manner. He says the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words, listen to this, in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any words of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. That's authoritative. And then we believe that the scriptures are sufficient. Let me just read quickly Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. Think about this as I read these verses. You're familiar with these verses, but think of the sufficiency of scriptures as I read these. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The law of the Lord is the word of God. Or all these phrases are, are describing the word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by the scriptures, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So the scriptures are sufficient. For the man or woman of God, they are sufficient, totally sufficient in and of themselves, the Bible is, for life and godliness. And that's what our philosophy of ministry states. That's what it states in the philosophy of ministry on the website. You can go there and look at it. But let me ask you this. What do you as an individual think about that? The church will take a doctrinal stance, but what do you think about the scripture? How do you view scripture? Let me ask you these questions, two questions, to, uh, to, to help you flesh this out a little bit. What is your view of Scripture, number one? And number two, what do you do with the Scripture? What do you actually do with the Scripture in your own life? The second question might help you to see where your real priorities lie. It's easy for the church, like ours, to say, oh, we believe in the integrity of the Scriptures. But how does it work in your life? How does it affect you? How do you respond to those same Scriptures that you say, you say are supreme in your life? 
Well, Paul writing to Timothy speaks in this chapter, to set the context a little bit, of the different kinds of behavior that will affect, that people will have in the last days. The last days basically, basically began in the New Testament era when that came into, into being. Well, look at, look at what it says in verse 2. People will be lovers of self. They'll love themselves. They will love money. They will be boastful, arrogant. They'll be revilers. They'll be disobedient to parents. They'll be unthankful, ungrateful, unholy. They will be unloving. They will be irreconcilable. Malicious gossips. They'll be without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. They'll hold to a form of godliness only. Does that remind you of anybody in our generation? That's not a very flattering list, but it's true. That's how the world is. Verses 6 to 8 go on to talk about false teachers, their deviousness, their depravity, their folly. Look what it says in verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households. These are false teachers captivating the weak, weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres, the two Egyptian sorcerers in Moses' time, opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth. They're men of depraved mind. They are rejected, these false teachers, in regard to the faith. And in verse 13, Paul goes on to say these false teachers will go from bad to even worse. They continue to get worse. Now, what does all this mean for Timothy? <clears throat> it is against this backdrop that we've seen in chapter 3 that Timothy will receive important instructions from Paul. In light of the evil in the world, in light of the false teaching in the world, the religious impostors that abound everywhere in the world, in light of all that, there is vital truth that Timothy must understand. And we must understand it as well. And what is that vital truth? It is this, that the scriptures are to be recognized as supreme, absolutely, absolutely supreme in the life of the believer. Let me first start off by saying, number one, believers should be fully committed to the scriptures. They should be fully committed to the scriptures, verses 14 and 15, where it says of chapter 3, You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood... You have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Believers are to be fully committed to the scriptures. Now, how does this commitment demonstrate itself? This commitment to the scriptures, how does it demonstrate itself? Well, first of all, this commitment will be demonstrated by its contrast to the world. Its contrast to the world. You'll notice the first two words of verse 14. He says, talking to Timothy, he says, You, however... There's a word of contrast. It's meant to show contrast. He says the same thing in verse 10. He says, now you, Timothy, he's contrasting him with the false teachers. Now you, Timothy, followed my teaching, my conduct, verse 13. But evil men and impostors are going to get worse and worse. It's a, it's, a, it's a word of contrast. He says, Timothy, evil men are going to become more and more evil, but you are different. You are not like them. You are a man of God. You are a true believer. There, and, and by the way, there should be a distinct difference between someone who knows God and someone who doesn't, right? Shouldn't it stand to reason that there should be a distinct difference between the two? But it seems that there are many people who profess to know Christ who live exactly like the world lives. They've not changed at all. But we know better, don't we? A, a, a believer should be fully committed to the Scriptures, and as a result, there should be a stark contrast uh, between him and an unbeliever. I don't mean you, you're weird or something like that or strange or odd. I mean, and don't, don't act odd unnecessarily either. 
I just mean you're different because you're following the scriptures, that's all. Now, you know, godless people and selfish people, as it says in the first few verses of chapter 3, are, and they're going to be selfish. They're going to continue to be that way. They're going to propagate unscriptural te- teachings. That's what they're going to do. But the true believer will be transformed by the word of God, and his life is going to be distinctly different as a result. Secondly, this commitment will be demonstrated in a faithful continuance in the scriptures. There will be a faithful continuance in the scriptures. It says in verse 14, You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned. Continue in the things you have learned. Continue here is a commitment to doing a long is a commitment to a long-term way of doing something. You're committed for the long term. It's, it's a command, actually, to keep uh, on doing an action as your general habit of life. This is what you do on a daily basis. You live a certain way. You're, you're to continue. Continue in what? In what things? Well, in the things that Timothy had learned. You see, Timothy had learned something because someone taught him something. And what was that? Verse 15. That from a childhood you have known the sacred writings. Timothy had learned the sacred writings. He had been taught the sacred writings. The Holy Scriptures. This is what Timothy had to continue and He had to continue in the Scriptures. He had to continue to learn the Scriptures. He had to persist in the study of the Scriptures. He had to continue to obey the Scriptures. He had to continue to teach the Scriptures to others. His whole life was centered upon the Scriptures. Everything he did was to be a revolve around that. <clears throat> you know, Jesus affirmed the same truth in John 8, 31. He said, if you are my disciples, you're going to continue in my word. You're going to continue in that word. And it'll always be like that. Now, we're not to ever have the attitude that we've arrived. We've already arrived because we've come to a certain stage in our Christian life, and we think that, you know, we've arrived. Or, or now, now we need something in addition to God's word. We never get to that place. And by the way, don't be guilty of reading books about the Bible but neglecting the Bible itself. I've talked about this already before. Not, not against books, but read the Bible first and foremost. Why do I say this? Because we're born again by means of the Bible, according to James chapter 1. God uses his word as an instrument to, to bring us to Christ. And we're sanctified by that word throughout life. John 17, 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. We don't graduate from the Bible as we get more spiritual, supposedly, to something more advanced. That's not how it works. We stay with the Bible always. We start with the Bible. We continue with the Bible. We die with the Bible. It's always that way. So Paul says you continue in the things you have already learned. You're learning this, you've learned the Scriptures. You're not going anywhere, Timothy. You're going to stay with the Scriptures the rest of your life. <clears throat> so there's going to be this faithful continuance in the, in the Scriptures. And then this commitment to the Scriptures will be demonstrated, demonstrated in a conviction about the Scriptures. You'll have a conviction about them. <clears throat> now, notice it says here in verse 14 that Timothy had become convinced of the truth of the Scriptures. He continued in them and became convinced about them. That means he, he came to the place where he held a firm belief in the, in the truth of what the Word of God says. And we need to be fully persuaded in our minds that what we have in front of us is the Word of God. This is indeed the scriptures, the truth of the scriptures. The doctrines of it are true. It should be our fixed and firm belief that we carry with us always. It's a bedrock, non-negotiable conviction that we maintain in our lives. We have this always. You know, apostasy is surrounding us always. False teachers are always taking shots at the scripture. We're constantly bombarded by some anti-theological or anti-scriptural position, rather, 
There's books always written to, to try to, to you know, bring down the scriptures or put them down or some crazy heresy comes along. And, and we've got to maintain through all that. This is always going to be the case. There's always going to be some theology that comes across the land, across the world, that someone starts to say something and everybody reads the book the guy wrote and everybody believes in it. It's heresy. That's why we stay, we continue in the scriptures. We've got to have this bedrock uh, conviction about them that these are the word, this is the word of God and stay with it. <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, for example, um, and this is sad, and I've said this before, but Christian scholars are abandoning the idea of a literal six-day creation that Genesis plainly states is, is the case. They're giving that up uh, left and right in favor of some hybrid of, of, of creation-slash-evolution stance they take, try to combine the two and make it you know, palatable for the Christian, and yet their goal is to please so-called scientists who they worship. Now, a scientist is one who, who really experiments and observes uh, things, and you can't do that with the creation of the world. So evolution is only a theory. I don't believe it's a correct theory at all. It's only a theory, nothing more, but people want to believe that it's true somehow. You know, we had a, in the last couple of years, <clears throat> a, 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 a major scholar in the, in, the, in the Old Testament world, Bruce Waltke, who had been teaching for years, he came to this conclusion that, he said this, if the data, for evolu- if the data is overwhelmingly in favor of evolution, to deny that reality will make us, Christians, a cult. If we, he says if, the, if the, the data for evolution is overwhelming, then to deny that will make believers a cult. Now, I don't know what overwhelming data he's referring to. There's no overwhelming data at all if, if you study this whole subject. But he, he, in his mind, there is. But this is happening constantly. This, this is only one example. There's always something coming down the pike. That to take our minds away from the Word of God. <clears throat> Someone said, if you don't believe the first page of the Bible, how will you believe the rest of it, right? Starts with creation, with Genesis. Let me ask you this. Are you convinced of the absolute truth of the Scripture and the Scripture alone? Are you convinced? I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying we should be against science at all. I'm not saying the Bible harmonizes with true science always. Why? Because God is in back of the true laws of science. Of course, He established them. Why would He be in opposition to them? But if someone comes up with a theory that they can't prove, that's a different story. I'm not talking about that. Are you convinced of the absolute truth of the Scripture, that it's, that it's true? It's the Word of God. And then this commitment will be de- demonstrated by teaching others the Scriptures. <clears throat> Your commitment to the Scriptures will be demonstrated by teaching others the Scriptures. You really believe the Scriptures? Then you will help someone else to know the Scriptures also. Who had Timothy learned the Scriptures from originally? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Because Paul says in, 1 Tim- in 2 Timothy 3, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. You've learned these from certain people, Timothy. Who do you learn them from? Look at 2 Timothy 1, 5. It says there, For I am mindful, Paul says to Timothy, of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Where did Timothy learn the scriptures from originally? He learned it from his grandmother and his mother. What a great place. What a great heritage he had. He learned it from his grandmother and his mother. Now, Acts 16.1 says that Timothy's mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. 
It also says that Timothy's mother was a believer, and it only says his father was a Greek, leading us to believe that his father was not saved, did not know the Lord, but, but his mother definitely did. Furthermore, his father is not mentioned anywhere as an influence on Timothy's life. So Timothy was originally taught and influenced by two women, his grandmother and his mother. Now I want to tell you, parents and grandparents, we have a tremendous responsibility to teach and to model the Word of God before our children and our grandchildren, don't we? We have a tremendous, incredible responsibility. They should be your greatest disciples of all. Of course we want to disciple people. We'll talk about that a little bit. Greatest disciples you'll ever have will be your own children, or your own grandchildren even. They're right in your lap. God has delivered them right to your doorstep. They're, there, they're yours to, to tutor, to, to mentor. And you say, what's well, an impossible task? But with God's help, it can be done. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. I know you know this verse. <clears throat> and God says here, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7. What are you going to do with these words? You shall teach them diligently to your sons. She'll talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Teach them diligently to your sons. In other words, teach them diligently to your children, right? We have a tremendous responsibility as parents to teach the Word of God to our children. That's very, extremely important. I don't mean in a pharisaical way to where you drive them away from the Scriptures. That happens all too often. I'm talking about in a loving, encouraging way. You encourage them in the Scriptures. So... Timothy was taught by his grandmother and his mother. Who else taught Timothy? Well, Paul the Apostle did. Look at 2 Timothy 3.10. It says there, Paul says to Timothy, he says, Now you, Timothy, followed my teaching. And the the intent, I think Justin probably had the ESV, the intent is there's a my really in front of, it's intended to be in front of each word. You, You followed my teaching. You followed my conduct, my purpose, my faith. My patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions, my sufferings, those things that happened to me in all those cities that are mentioned, you followed me in every way, through hardships, through good and the bad, through, uh, through, through the teaching of the Word of God, you followed these things. You see, Paul poured his life into Timothy, and he taught him the Word of God by word and by example, both. And he even goes further than that. In 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul tells, tells Timothy this, the things which you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This goes on and on, doesn't it? Reproducing yourself in the lives of others uh, under the authority of Christ. This is the mission of the church, to make disciples. This is what this church is all about. This is what we should be all about. This is what, we're, what the church should be about. And how are you doing in this area, though? Are you discipling anybody at all? Have you ever discipled anybody who said, I can't disciple people? And I know we've had this discussion about discipling and counseling versus counseling in our church and the confusion that we were, we all thought we had to be professional counselors certified somewhere to do this. Look, take the word of God with somebody and do the best you can to, to help them out, to help them to understand it. Get the fundamentals of the faith workbook and go through that with them. We have, and just work through it with them. This is the mission of the church to disciple people. Are you discipling anybody at all? Parents, are you discipling your children? 
by your life and by your words. It's not just by your words. You do this, son, and don't do that over here, and do this over here. It's not just that. It's not, it's not that at all, in fact. It's an encouraging, loving way to do things. Grandparents, are you influencing your children with the Word of God? Are you doing that? And it's not only the life that you live, it's, or the, it's the words that you say, it's the life that, that backs it up as well, right? They've got to see both. If they, see, if they see, hear you saying things about the Bible and they see you living differently from that, they're going to see that through that clearly. You're not going to fool them. You're going to raise a hypocrite. You're going to raise a rebel is what you're going to raise with that mentality. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 14, he says, knowing from whom you have learned these things. You've learned the scriptures. You know who you learned them from. Timothy knew well the character of the people that taught him the scriptures. He knew who they were. He knew what they were like. He knew from personal experience how exemplary his grandmother was. He knew the, the great example his mother was. He knew that. He knew what a great example Paul was, the one who had taught him many things. Parents, what kind of example are you setting for your children? Or will you set for your children yet to come? See, this church, the way it's going, is going to continue to have babies. You have babies coming, and you're going to have to be an example. Think about the future. You say, I'm not married yet. Well, one day you may be. How are you going to raise those children one day? I haven't even thought that far yet. It's impossible. Start thinking about it, like now. You can be the teacher God wants you to be in both word and example. And he says in that from a childhood, verse 15, you've known the sacred scriptures. Childhood can refer to, can refer to either an unborn child or an infant or a very small, small child. The fact is you cannot start too early to teach your children the Word of God. You can't start too early to do it. You say they can't understand it. Start teaching them the best you can. You can't start too early. And I've said this before. Some of you have heard this. I know that. But I'm always fascinated when I think of this illustration from, from history. The King James translators, you ought to read about them sometime. They were absolutely brilliant scholars. Not only that, they were godly men. Maybe some of them were a little shaky. But they were, they were brilliant men, good men, men of God. I won't go into that. They were good men. There was a man by the name of John Boys, B-O-I-S, who was a King James translator, brilliant man. When, his, when he was a small child, his father taught him to read Hebrew, taught him Hebrew. Do you know what he did by the time he was five years of age? By the time he was five years of age, he read the entire Old Testament through. Not in English. He read it through in Hebrew when he was five. How many here read the, the entire Bible through in English when you were five? How about now? Don't raise your hand. But the, at the age of six, he was writing Hebrew in a clear and an elegant style. Now, it could be that John Boyce was especially gifted, in these areas. But they had a different mindset back then. They believed that you could teach children. They used catechisms back in that day to teach children the scriptures. They'd ask questions. Who is God? And the children would answer. What is the scriptures? They'd answer. It's their inspired word of God or whatever their answer was in the catechism. They taught their children. And I'm not saying that, chil that children need to be Greek and Hebrew scholars. I am saying that they need to be taught the word of God. I'm definitely saying that. Do not underestimate your children. Do not underestimate your children. They can, they can learn the scriptures. They can learn the scriptures. They are able to learn them. You say, well, they can't. They just don't get it. Just try it. Just do it. They can learn the scriptures. Now, the Bible is called here the sacred writings or the holy scripture. It's the only place that this phrase is used. 
The phrase was used to designate primarily the Old Testament. What, what was the Bible Paul used? The Old Testament, right? Sacred writings. This, the word sacred was used to associate the scriptures with God himself. These are the writings from God. This book is unlike any other book. There's literature that, that is called sacred or holy, like the Koran. Some, some would call that holy. Some would call the Vedas of India holy. Some would call the Book of Mormon holy. But there's only one book from God, and that is the Holy Scriptures, right? The sacred writings. It is these scriptures that give the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, it says. The Old Testament teaches that, by the way. And by the way, Obviously, Paul went on to write much of the New Testament scriptures, it's, and, and, the, and the, the term sacred writings goes on to include the New Testament as well. The first reference was to the Old Testament. That's what he had first. The Old Testament teaches salvation. It teaches it through the animal sacrifices that were given that pointed to Christ, right, as the final sacrifice. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The scriptures teach in the, in the many prophecies, like Isaiah 53, that Christ came to die for our sins. Psalm 22 he died on the cross, and you see the quotes from the cross back to Psalm 22. The New Testament teaches that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's only through the name of Christ that we're saved. Now, we know the New Testament and the Old Testament both enlarge upon the idea of faith and talk about repentance, which is turning from your sins and turning to Christ in faith. But here it's described as faith in Christ Jesus. Old Testament or New Testament, doesn't matter. There's only one way of salvation taught, and that is through Jesus Christ alone and through faith alone in him, not by works, lest any man should boast. It's not by your works. It's not by your good deeds. It's not by anything you think you can do to please God. It's only by Christ alone and no other way. The Scripture is very clear about that. So if you say you believe that the Scriptures are supreme in the life of the believer, then your life will be lived in stark contrast to the world. You will continue in pursuit of the scriptures. You will have a conviction of, about the scriptures that they are indeed the very words of God. And you will be involved in teaching someone else over time the scriptures. Believers should be fully committed to the scriptures. Secondly, believers should understand the origin of the scriptures. They should understand the origin of the scriptures. Verse 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Scriptures are the inspired word of God. This is from our statement of faith also. It says this. <clears throat> we believe that the 66 books of the Bible constitute the word of God, his only written special revelation to man, which he has faithfully preserved throughout time. The scriptures are divinely inspired, they're God-breathed in origin, God-breathed out his word, which means they must be inerrant, without errors, in the original writings and infallible, also preserved. Such inspiration must also be verbal. That means every word is inspired. And plenary means all parts are equally inspired because God is its source. Now let me break that definition down a little bit. First of all, we're talking about the 66 books of the Bible. We're not talking about the Apocrypha included in Catholic Bibles and things like that. We're not talking about another testament of Jesus that the Mormons hold to or anything else you want to call the Word of God. We're talking about the Word of the Scriptures here, the 66 books, which is his only written revelation to man. And then these, this Scripture has been faithfully preserved in history. This is nothing short of miraculous. Nothing else can come anywhere near 
the manuscripts that have been preserved throughout the centuries uh, of the, uh, for the Bible. Uh, nothing even comes close to it. Nothing, no, no writing in antiquity comes even close to it. Manuscripts were carefully copied and passed down through the centuries. There are thousands of Greek manuscript, manuscripts preserved through the centuries. There are tons of ancient versions like Latin versions, Syriac, and it goes on and on that we have. There are many writings of the church fathers that I believe, if you put the writings of the church fathers all together in the early centuries, I think they quote every verse in the New Testament except for 11, which that, that alone may be able to, to, constitute, to put together an, almost an entire New Testament. It's absolutely amazing. Nothing else in history can come close to matching it. It's a miracle of God that this would be preserved in this manner. Nothing comes near it. I think the nearest one to this is Homer's Iliad, which is like 600 copies, I think. I may have that wrong, something like that. A minor number of copies. You've got thousands of manuscripts that have been preserved of the Bible, Hebrew, and Greek throughout history, throughout centuries, which never happens. And then, working off this definition, God breathed, uh, stress, the idea that the scriptures are God, all, where it says in verse 16, all scripture is inspired, it means all scripture is breathed out by God. It stresses the divine origin and the authority of the scriptures that came from God. 2 Peter 1.21 <clears throat> says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God gave his word to men. They wrote it down. They passed it on to us. There is no errors in the word of God. Each word in both Old and New Testaments is, is inspired by God. God used different writers to pin down his word. He didn't inspire the writers. He inspired his word to be written. God worked through, by the way, God worked through the unique personalities of the people, through the unique personality of John and Paul and Moses and others, to, to put his word, it was not a mechanical dictation thing, he worked through these men to put his word down. And when the scripture speaks, God is speaking. When the scripture speaks, God is speaking. This is the only message we have to preach the word of God right here. The scriptures originate in God. Thirdly, believers should be encouraged by the sufficiency of the scriptures. They should, we should be encouraged by the sufficiency of the scriptures. Verses 16 and 17 again. <clears throat> it says here, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. It's profitable. How much of scripture is profitable? How much is profitable? Verse 16 says all, right? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. All of it's profitable. That means that that portion in Leviticus, that uh, if you use the plan that Mike is, is using, that you read the other day, that you may have read the other day, that, that, that is profitable to you, that part of, of Leviticus, and all of Leviticus. The genealogies, there's a reason they're there. The historical accounts in the Bible are profitable. The prophets are profitable. The Psalms and the Proverbs are profitable. The Gospels are profitable, and so are the epistles. God put every word there for a reason. He's got a reason for it. You say, I don't understand why this is here, this thing in Leviticus or Numbers. Why is this here? It's there for a reason. God knows. He's got a reason. These are profitable scriptures. That means they're useful. They're beneficial to all of us. The scriptures are beneficial to you in your life and to me in my life. They're useful. You know, many people think that the Bible is some kind of an antique. It's good for the past, the people in the past, but today it's kind of a collector's item, right? It's more than that. The Bible is profitable. It's relevant. We, by the way, we don't have to make the Bible relevant. We don't have to make it relevant. It is relevant. In and of itself, it is. We have to study it to understand it is our, is our problem. We don't want to work hard at it is our problem. 
but God intended it to be effective in our lives. You know, I had a boss at work years ago who said he was a Christian. I'm not doubting that he was a Christian, but I think he was in a real weak church. He told me that in his church, we had a, about a, a real brief conversation one day because I was on the run out there and he was doing his thing. Anyway, saw him for a few minutes and he said that in his church, the pastor talked, would spend about 30 minutes preaching. He would talk about relevant issues. Sorry, Ryan, air quotes. Talk about relevant issues for 25 minutes. And then he would spend about five minutes on some Bible verses. Relevant issues for 25 minutes and five minutes on Bible verses. Now, there is a pastor who does not practically believe in the supremacy of the Scriptures, right? If he did, the whole message would have been tied to the Scriptures and, and explained from the Scriptures. But he thought, no, I've got to be relevant. The Bible is relevant. Speak from the Scriptures. That's what God said. God's not relevant? He's more relevant than God is, I guess. The Bible's profitable, though. It's profitable in four areas. Number one, it's profitable for teaching, for teaching. Oh, boy, how, much, how many people don't like that at all? Or doctrine, the old versions say. That's an even worse word for them. That is to say this, Scripture instructs one by means of its content. Scripture instructs, instructs a person by means of its content. Romans 15, 4, whatever, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instructions. So you have this doctrine, this teaching. Is that necessary? Is it really necessary to have this? Yes, it is, because it's the foundation upon which all practical living is based. Without doctrine, we have absolutely no standard to go by. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 as he goes on in the passage, verses 1 to 4. 2 Timothy 4, 1. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Preach the word. That's the message. Re be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Kind of sounds like verse 16 of chapter 3. Do these things with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance, accordance to their own desires and will turn away from their, their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So we don't have a standard if we don't have doctrine. And if in our day, we've substituted other things for doctrine and for teaching of the Word of God. We've substituted entertainment. Or we have videos in our church. Or we have pablum of all sorts we throw out there for people to digest easily instead of doctrine. And that is why so many people are weak and sickly in the church. They don't have any foundation. No strong foundation of the Word of God. But it's profitable for teaching. Secondly, it's profitable for reproof, it says in verse 16. Pre reproof. Scripture, that's rebuke. Scripture is a rebuke to people who are living in opposition to it. It rebukes those people who hold false beliefs. If, you're not, if your life does not reflect Scripture, then you're going to be rebuked by the Scripture, right? And by the way, read it long enough, and the Lord will rebuke you about something in your life. I know from personal experience. I come across verses, oh, oh, great. i got to change that. i got to do something about that situation. Lord, help me with that. And unless you're perfect, you've been rebuked by the Scripture many times by now, hopefully, if you're a true believer. We need to be rebuked by Scripture. It's a good thing. And then it's profitable for correction. That's an interesting word. It means to set right. It's the idea of restoring something to its proper condition. 
The word was used in uh, Greek literature outside of the Bible to, to talk about restoring a or setting a fallen object back to its original position, something that has fallen. They set it back up to where it was. It was also used of helping people who had fallen uh, down to get back up on their feet. So the scripture can correct us. It can put us back where we belong. Not only rebukes us or teaches us, it restores us to the place we once were until we fell by the wayside. It corrects us and brings us back to the place we should be. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness, also verse 16. The scripture is designed to produce righteous conduct in our life. That's what it's for. It's not so we can get head knowledge and be academicians. It's so we can live righteously before God. Really, this is an education in righteousness. This, this term, the term had to do, this term, instruction in righteousness, or training in righteousness, had to do with the training of children. Just as the child is educated, he's trained, he's disciplined by his parents, so the word of God trains the believer to live a life that is righteous. See, the Bible is a library. It's like a library of 66 books, books and you have the spiritual education you get that's second to none. No seminary, no Bible college, no seminar, no counseling, uh, school of counseling can teach what, how the scripture teaches. It's education second to none. But this is also a lifelong learning program. I'm not downing seminaries and all that, by the way. This is a lifelong learning program. You're always going to be studying this. You're never really going to graduate because you're never really going to arrive in this life. These are the four areas that scripture shows itself to be profitable to us. And what is the purpose? Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that, here's the purpose, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, Timothy was called a man of God in 1 Timothy 6.11. He says, oh, you, O man of God, flee certain things and follow righteousness. Flee sin and evil and follow righteousness. Timothy needed the word of God in his life as a man of God. But the term is left undefined in 2 Timothy 3.17. It just says that the man of God, anybody, should be adequate. Who is the scripture sufficient for? It is sufficient for everyone who belongs to God, for every man of God, for every woman of God, everyone who belongs to God. Either you're a man of God or a woman of God or becoming that, one of the two. I'm not talking about preachers only, by the way. I'm talking about everybody in the auditorium here, everybody that's a believer. The man or woman of God may become adequate or capable. The scriptures are able to make a believer proficient in a life that is pleasing to God. They alone can do it. They can do it if we'll respond to them. By the, by the work of the Spirit in our life, as He works in our life, as we respond to the Word of God, our lives are changed. There's an old proverb that says, Beware of the man of one book. It's talking about the Bible. Spurgeon said this, listen to this great quote. A man who has learned not merely the letter of the Bible, but its inner spirit, will by no means be an, insign an insignificant man or woman, whatever deficiencies he may labor under. Whatever deficiencies we may labor under, you may labor under, the Word of God makes you adequate in the spiritual life to be what God wants you to be. He will be equipped, it says in verse 17, for every good work. There is nothing lacking in the Scriptures to fit a believer for his work that God wants him to do. The, 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 the complete Scriptures, the totality of Scriptures, fit us to do the work of God. We need nothing else. Now, I'm not discounting the place of teachers of the Scripture. Because the Bible says we need to have teachers of the Scripture, and we're holding to the Bible, right? 
But not, we need nothing else other than they, as long as they're teaching the scriptures, we're fine. We need nothing else. The scripture is sufficient to prepare us for life and ministry. And that's what it says here. So believers should be committed to the scriptures. It should go without saying that, that believers continue to read their Bibles, continue to, to meditate upon their Bibles, love their Bibles. We should have a strong conviction that this is indeed the Word of God. As a result, we should teach people the Bible. We should disciple others in the Scriptures. Also, we should use it to explain the way of salvation to others because where do we find the way of salvation? We find it in the Scriptures, it says here, 2 Timothy 3. We should keep in mind that this word originated with God so that when we read the words of Scripture or hear them, we are in fact hearing the very, we're hearing from God himself. We're not hearing some vision or voice somewhere. We're hearing the word of God. That's what we need to hear. And finally, we take courage in the fact that though we are insufficient in ourselves, and we certainly are, our sufficiency is found in the Lord and in his word because the word of God is totally sufficient for life and godliness. Let me ask you this in closing. Do you believe in the supremacy of the Scripture? Do you believe in the supremacy of the Scripture? And is that belief demonstrated in your life? Does it show itself in your life? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good, every good work. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We do pray that we would be in this, this new year, 2013, that we would be people of the word, people whose lives are centered upon the word, who filter everything we think through the word, who filter all our philosophies through the word and opinions and things that we hear and books that we read and, and all that, sermons we hear even, we pray we'll filter it through the content of the word of God to see if it, if it stands up to the test of the truth. We pray that we'd be those who not only would hear the word, we'd be doers of the word as well, obeying what it says by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Pray that we'd be those who teach the word to somebody else this year. Pray that 2013 will be a year when all of us in the room here will find out someone, seek out someone to teach the word of God to as best we can. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.